So we are reading from Joshua chapter 7 this morning and that is on page 218 in the Blue Bibles. And we're just going to be reading verse 1 to 12. So Joshua chapter 7. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Kami, son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will be, and they will surround us and wipe us our name out from the earth. Then, what then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen and they have lied. They have put them in their own possessions. This, that is what the Israelites cannot stand against, sorry, that is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Nice easy passage right today. Um, wow, it's a challenging one and, uh, and if you're here for the um, first time wondering what is going on, um, hopefully we can be helpful in trying to get a bit of a picture about what's going on in Joshua because that is a pretty intense passage uh, to say the least uh, today. Um, but actually, while it's going to be, it has to be kind of serious and thought-provoking, it is actually when we get to it really pointing us towards hope when we truly understand what's lying behind God, even if we don't get all our questions resolved. Um, we'll get there in a moment, but if you've got a, a booklet there, there's an outline on page uh, page five, and you'll see there as well that um, in the coming weeks, Paul Harrington, the senior pastor of the whole Trinity Network, is going to be preaching after um, I finish off the Joshua series. He's going to be doing Romans chapter eight. That whole, It's a great chapter. It fits in perfectly with the, uh, how Joshua travels, and I'll even be bringing it up today, which is so uh, perfect in its transition. And can I also encourage you to see what else is going on? Um, there's a, a leadership um, conference, CV conference, that uh, if you're thinking about ministry and thinking about those kind of things um, and, and leadership that's worthwhile going to. And we're possibly going to have five people, three to five people, um, going going to that. Um, if, uh, if you wanted to support them, 
feel free to um, offer a donations to help uh, fund paying for them to go. But um, you don't have to feel, feel that burden, but that's something that is really great that we've got probably four or five people going to that conference that you'll see in the booklet there as well. But now let's, uh, let me pray and then let's get into this fascinating but all but challenging passage. Oh, Heavenly Father, we just do pray now as we come to your word. We've had it read to us and whether we've got all the context of Joshua in our mind or we don't have it in our mind, it's still perplexing. And so we ask that uh, by your spirit we'll get greater clarity, that we'll see the need to deal with sin, but even greater see that you ultimately deal uh, with sin in our lives through the Lord Jesus. Amen. What things do you like to take seriously in life? We like taking certain things seriously. Some things it's because they really matter or the people really matter to us. My children this morning, and happy Father's Day and fathers and all that kind of stuff, my children really this year decided to get really obsessed about Father's Day and I possibly got the greatest card of all time this morning. It's up on the screen. You are my father and they used to glow stiff for a lightsaber and those of you who know Star Wars is the greatest thing ever. So that was a brilliant card. They took it desperately seriously, their relationship with me and it was a delight. A delight. (laughs) This is going to be a good talk, isn't it? (laughs) Um, But you know what? There are things we take seriously, not because necessarily people matter to us or because it's something good, but because there's a serious warning. When your boss says you do this or you get the sack, it's a serious warning. Today's passage in... uh, in Joshua, is actually a kind of a very serious warning uh, for God's people. And as we wrestle with it, and there's wrestling to be done, what we'll actually get to see is that God wants us to treat our relationship with him seriously and so we deal with sin and we remember ultimately who deals with it for us. So that's where we're going today. So if, I don't know where you all are with God. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to be convicted of your need to deal with, uh, to continue to deal with sin because you want to follow God. And if you're not sure where you are with God, today is a chance for you to realise that God actually wants you to know that he doesn't, he's not okay with rejection, but he's going to do something about it. So where are we in Joshua? Where are we up to in the story? Uh, if you haven't read it up to this point, go back and read those first uh, six chapters today, because it is fascinating. We heard about the water stuff uh, with the kids a bit earlier. But where we are up to into the story, Israel are a very, very confident people. And their confidence is because of where they come from. God, get ready, this is your cue for those who have been here the last few weeks. God has made very big promises and they can be described as... I think you're purposely doing this to me, to me now. What is, what is God's promises that he's made to his people? Land, offspring, blessing. God has promised that his people, he said it to Abraham, that my people will have a great land and you will be numbered many, many, many. You'll have many offspring and you will be blessed and you will be a blessing to the nations. Lob, got it people? Next week, lob, yell it out at me. Lob. 
these promises are a big deal because this is how God says, I'm going to relate to my people and this is what they are going to have. And the people, after their years in the Exodus and escaping uh, the slavery in Egypt and their ridiculous sin in the wilderness for 40 years, the promises of the El, the land, are here. And we've seen that they've actually got into the land. The promises are coming true. They've they've uh, actually walked through the River Jordan in astounding ways that uh, it reflects what happened in uh, walking through the Dead Sea. We saw last week that amazing story at the Battle of Jericho and how um, God had uh, given them that city and that the people of Jericho were for generations after generations just horrendous. The people have heard God's promises and, and they've, they've got every reason to think if God is for us, who can be against us? They are very confident. That is their attitude. It is an attitude that God's people should actually have and we'll see that in Romans, in Romans chapter 8 where Paul actually says uh, to the people of Rome in light of Jesus, if God is for you and Jesus has done all this for you, no one can defeat you, no matter what it looks like. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is the creator of all things. And Jesus has died and risen for you. He's on your side. He has your back. God says there's no enemy too great. And the Israelites here in this story, up to this point, are going, yeah, that seems to be the case. There's no condemnation. With all this confidence... With the big promises, their recent experiences, they go from Jericho, the first city that they deal with in the land that God's given them, and they go to a place called Ai. And with their confidence, in classic, um, in classic uh, Bible style, God makes his promises. People say they're going to keep their promises. What pattern happens next? You usually get the word, but... And here we see it again. Have a look. It'd be helpful to have uh, the, uh, the Joshua open in, in a Bible in front of you. When we jump into a few New Testament passages, I'll, um, I'll put them up on the screen for you. But if you've got it in front of you, verse, chapter 7, verse 1, the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Kami, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against him. You see, God God was pretty angry. And he's pretty angry because the instructions were clear. If we jumped back to chapter 6, verse 17, uh, verse 18, we see that when God said, take um, the city of Jericho, all the, the uh, precious things, they're to be devoted to God, you don't take them for yourself. That was clear as crystal. The instruction, without a doubt, was known. And Achan deliberately took them for himself. Down in, uh, down in verse 20, when he uh, gets busted and he finally admits to it, he says, It is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful, hit, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them. Achan knew God said, this is not for you, but he saw and he wanted. The shift of 
God keeps his promises, I'm doing what you need, yes, God will follow you, is now an example where, God, I'm going to do what I want. What we have here is a picture of sin. Here we see that sin is a deliberate choice to ignore and reject what God wants because you want something else. That's what Achan did. And what we're actually doing amongst all the intenseness of these two chapters is we're seeing that we get insight into how a holy God views sin. He's not a fan. But as the story goes on, all the while, the rest of Israel, they don't really have an idea of what's happened with with Achan, but the consequences for them are great. See, the second point, Alan, is, is that what happens is that the people are defeated. They go into, oh, we're going to... We've got this covered. We've got this covered. We don't need to take all our men into battle. Just two or three thousand will do the job. Don't worry about it. We won't. They didn't even really call out or cry to God to find out anything from him. They just kind of went and did it. But it didn't really work out that way. Verse 4, about 3,000 went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites out from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. Have a look at the next sentence. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. That is profoundly ironic because when confronted with a holy God, it's the people of the other nations in their wickedness that we see described previously as melting with fear. And now God's people are the ones melting with fear. This is, no doubt, a massive confidence blow. Like, what just happened? God's on our side. Who can be against us? No enemy can defeat us. How could this possibly take place? And Joshua is perplexed like everyone else. And so he and the leaders following Joshua, they, they come before God. He says in verse 7, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side. He prays to God. He's like, ah, this wasn't the plan. We're on your side. I've led the people, I've done what you've said. What is going on? Then God responds. It's worth us reflecting on what God says to him right here in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up! It's like, I've got something to say now, Joshua, and you're going to listen. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, that is, promises with him, their binding promises, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. <laughs> it's disconcerting when you're reading about God speaking and you hear a voice. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. 
Oh, that's one of my favorite moments. Okay, so. <laughs> Stand up, he said. He says, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. So he's saying, Joshua, you lost because we had a covenant and Israel hasn't kept it. Achan did not keep it. And he says in verse 12, that is why the Israelites cannot stand against the enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. Notice what he says next. A holy God can't stand sin. And so he says, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Why did they lose? It wasn't because I were a better, a better um, city than Jericho. It wasn't because of uh, the nations around them and their power. It's because of something that we need to take to heart today. The greatest enemy is sin that's within. It's not what's going on outside us and looking how persecuted we are, how bad things are. The greatest enemy is when we turn away from God. It's not uncommon to the New Testament. In Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse 26, I'm pretty sure it's up on the screen. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice of sins is left. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you can't say, I'm going to keep God's promises, he saved me, and then go, but I'm going to ignore the promises and the way he wants me to live. It doesn't work like that. Jesus didn't come and try and take out the Romans, did he? And when people thought to do that, he said, no, no, no. Jesus came and dealt with sin. How did he start his ministry? He went into the desert and Satan was trying to tempt him to do what Achan did, to reject God, to reject his father. But Jesus did not do that. And so the people are defeated and God says it needs to be dealt with. Sin needs to be dealt with. But it's interesting, isn't it? This highlights something that's perplexing for us. Sin and the community, it's a problem for the whole community. Don't, we don't see anywhere in this passage that it says everyone else is sinning and Achan's just an example. We haven't got that information. We just see that when there is sin in the community, the whole community has the problem. Verse 1 the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. That is, Achan did this. Verse 11, Israel has sinned. That's weird. Do you know why it's weird? Because we live in a time, in a culture, in a Western culture, where we could not be more any individualistic if we tried. But other cultures are going, yeah, okay. That's the problem that the people have. But we are so just worried about myself. Well, that shouldn't have effect on me, but God has deals with the people. 
God sees it differently. And what's really interesting in this passage, while it doesn't resolve everything for us, particularly the consequences, nowhere do you see the people complaining that it's not fair because of what Achan's done. They just say, what have you done, Achan? This is going to affect us. Because they know that's how God rightly works. It affects the whole community and so the whole community must deal with it. And once again, in the New Testament, it's not a completely foreign idea. Clearly it's not exactly the same, but the Christian community doesn't just let sin just be there. Look, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, that claims to be a Christian, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. That is to say, if you have people in your community and they say, yes, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus, but actually they're a follower of those things, you can't have that just be okay. How must sin then be dealt with? Point four. Well, back in the case of uh, Joshua and Achan, to be honest, I haven't resolved it completely in my own mind. It's difficult to take. What happens is God, in a process of identifying who did this great sin, sought out who it was, and as we saw... Joshua brought um, Achan to account and he confessed. And because this had to be dealt with, what happened was he was stoned and his family. And after this horrific event happened, we see it kind of resolves in verse 26. Verse 1, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Verse 26, the Lord turned his fierce anger away. You see, what had happened is that in this unique time in history where God is bringing his people into the promised land and he's gone to great depths to say this is a holy place where sin can't be, very moment where they go in, the place is corrupted by them, grave consequences happen that are unfathomable. Now it's important to note though, one of the biggest stakes we can make today is if we think, oh, this is happening in my life, it must be because of the sin that I've done. It may or may not be happened. Often it's not. We live in a fallen world and it's broken. There's all sorts of things that happen. Here, there is a direct word from God and it's clear. It's just folly to try and line up something that's happening in your life with specific sin all the time when we live in such a broken world where the consequences of sin, sometimes it's because of what you've done, you've, you've uh, been in rebellion or things have happened, but sometimes it's because of other people's rebellion or just that the world is at war with itself and broken because of sin. But here we have a clear word, it was explained. How do we respond to this? Well, that's where we're going to finish today. But before we do that, we need to see how this passage brings out the short-sightedness of sin. 
I've already read verse 21 in Achan, but gee, it's so ridiculous. And it's a beautiful picture of how the folly of sin and how short-sighted it is if we read it carefully again. Let's read verse 21 again. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I covered them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. The ridiculousness and short-sightedness of sin. He couldn't enjoy what he coveted because it was so wrong and that if he brought it out, he would be busted and he wouldn't get it anyway. That all he could do with what he coveted is hide it. It's like, I never understand why people think stealing very multi-million dollar paintings is a good idea because... You can't put it up anywhere unless you're moving it on. Those like to hoard and steal them, they're in, like, I don't understand that. But it's stupid. It's ridiculous and short-sighted. And you know the story uh, actually highlights that even more so in chapter 8 because if only he waited, the generous and gracious God, when they do actually take I, says to them, this time the plunder you can actually have for yourselves. I doesn't get to enjoy that plunder now, does he? This short-sightedness of sin, considering if only we wait, is a great challenge. It's helpful for us to remember when when we're in sin, struggling with it, wrestling with it, it doesn't seem short-sighted. That's the... Why, it's a wrestle. It's when we're in a non-Christian relationship and we think it's okay when God so clearly wants his people to be with his people. It's when we're in a Christian relationship, maybe even we're married and we struggle to take comfort somewhere else. It's when we seek the other pleasures of life when alcohol or drugs mean that we don't have control of our bodies and we behave in ways that dishonour God. The short-sightedness of sin. When our career is more important than God, that we make sure that our career means we cannot spend any time with his people and our career means we have to do lots of dodgy things but we turn a blind eye to it because it's the only way I can be successful. When good things we turn into sinful behaviour like our families. When we make them more important than God in our actions. That is one of the biggest challenges I've experienced as a pastor is trying to wrestle with that in my own life as, as, as having a family. But as a pastor seeing often my people time and time again struggling with that in our Western world. The short-sightedness of sin needs to be confronted by God's people. So in this passage then, how are we to be the mature people of God? I've got four points of reflection, three of detail and the final point, a bit of a summary. The first one is there, believe that sin is 
our big problem. That is, it is your big problem without Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus, that's what we deal with. There's no doubt that this section in Joshua, and Joshua as a whole in some ways, is a hard passage to take in. And if you're coming in blind today and and you're wrestling with, I can't, keep wrestling with those challenging things. But don't let that take away from the fact that actually what's so brilliant about Joshua is it's pointing towards the fact that God wants you to know that you and him have a problem because all of us have turned from him. And God wants you to know with that big problem, he is the one who deals with it. Let me show you how one of my favourite New Testament examples, which really is kind of highlights the tone of Joshua as well, in 1 John chapter 2. Now, my little children... I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Now we come to the time of the talk where we learn a word. (laughs) How many of you know what the word propitiation means? It's not used that often anymore. A few of us may know. It's actually not a hard word to understand. It's just kind of hard to say and don't try and say it fast because it sounds ridiculous. Propitiation just means having anger turned away. Now, your, your NIVs, if you've got that, and what we had read says atoning sacrifice for sins, which is true. That's what, how propitiation is dealt with. That's not completely wrong, but actually what's uh, super more accurate in highlighting the tone of what's going on is that it's a propitiation. That is, Jesus turns God's anger away from us and places it on him. So all this hardness about what's going on in Joshua and his fierce anger burns and he turns away, what's God's ultimate plan? Is that in Jesus, God himself, he's going to deal with his righteous, holy anger towards sin, his wrath, by letting all the justice that needs to be dealt with being poured on himself. Never forget that word propitiation. It is astounding that God would do that. A holy, righteous God who cannot be anywhere near sin comes into the world, makes himself flesh. Jesus, our Lord, our God, takes the wrath of God on himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is why that word is a word worth remembering. You know, it doesn't matter what you're harbouring that maybe only you know. 
that maybe only someone else knows. That gift of God's anger being turned away, it doesn't matter how big it is. It can't be, it can't be uh, too big that God would be willing to do that and him not be willing to turn his anger away. See today, the, the serious warning, you have a problem with God. But see even more spectacularly why I said at the beginning, this is actually a passage of great hope and joy because Jesus is there dealing with our sin. You may today realise I've never truly admitted that. I've never truly confessed that. But I do want him to take away my sin. It's a gift. You don't earn it. You just acknowledge that today. And know that God has dealt with There will be lots to deal with. That's what the rest this passage is about for all of us uh, Christians. And it, we, we have to wrestle with sin. The moment we stop wrestling with sin is the moment that we're throwing away what God has given us. But we don't earn our salvation by it. With a joyful heart, maybe for the first time, you can say, God is for me. Secondly, all of us need to take seriously the Bible's perspective warning, if you like, on sin. It's deadly serious. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul quite famously said, as we see on the screen, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is deadly serious. The wage is death. The consequences are eternal. Complacency with sin is exactly, is exactly where Satan wants you to be. He wants to eat away at your love of God and of your turning to him by you embracing what he embraces. If we understand the Bible's serious warning of death in the context of God saving us and grace and forgiveness, we can see that we are to put to death the sin that is still in our life. Just thinking about how often in the New Testament the writers of the New Testament and Jesus in the Gospels are saying, I've come to save you, but you've got to deal with this. Don't be happy with it. Don't be complacent with it. Have a look at Colossians chapter 3 for, as an example. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry, because of these the wrath of God is coming. Romans chapter 1 to 3. Three chapters highlighting that there's no one righteous and we need to deal with sin. We've just, we finished a series on Ephesians. Um, we finished this series on Ephesians and if you recall, Ephesians was very big on being in Christ, being like Jesus, being imitators of God. How are you going to do that if you don't deal with sin? Let me read to you a little a bit of Ephesians. It's not on the screen. He says, 
verse 17, I tell you this in chapter 4, and insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. That is, as those who don't follow Jesus. You can't live that way. So, you need to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its its deceitful desires, and put on a new self that is holy like God. We need to deal with sin in our life. I think this takes up a lot of my time wrestling with this and it's hard to do because just like you, alongside you, I struggle as a follower of Jesus, trying to be more and more like Jesus, dealing with sin in my life. And as your pastor, I struggle concerned and worried when are we actually dealing with it as a community, as a people? It's concerning when that mindset and attitudes are things like, this is just my sin, everyone has theirs. It won't matter. Uh, They'll be married eventually. It's not disobeying God. It's okay to go out with non-Christians. It doesn't. You can change what God thinks. Things that God clearly assists are wrong. Being out of control in our bodies in whatever way we do that. God's people are not to be on Heinley Street getting wasted or at home by themselves unable to think clearly. Are you dealing with sin in your life? Two questions for you to maybe wrestle with that. Are you someone who gravitates towards God and his people when you're struggling? Or do you move away? So often that is a massive warning sign. Do you naturally get angry or annoyed when someone challenges you or, or seeks to try and encourage you, whether they do it rightly or wrongly, whether they do it with great love and grace as we should, or whether sometimes we say things insensitively, what is your reaction? Dealing with sin in our life means as a Christian community, we seek to encourage one another to be more like Jesus. We create a better culture where we don't just accept what's happening. I wrestle with this passage and I think, and it comes into my mind, even if I don't want to come into mind, what if I say these things and people then go, you know what, I'm going to go to another church or I'm going to leave or I'm going to reject God now because you're too harsh. That pops into my mind. I can't shrink back from not saying those things. If every single one of you decided that that was too harsh and some of you said, I'm done with God or I'm going to another church and the only person left here was me, hopefully my family, (laughs) I think I still need to say it. Please don't do that. (laughs) Now, men need to deal with porn. 
Not if you struggle with it. Just Let's just say it as a blanket rule because it's so bad and so endemic. It's just a problem. Women, you need to deal with comparing yourself to others and the decisions you make that are really ungodly because of that great struggle. And you can flip it. It's not always stereotyped, is it? Sometimes men are struggling with comparing each other and, and more and more women are struggling with images on screens. A godly community goes back to Jesus on the cross and just is so thankful for what he's done and then doesn't put up with sin. And lastly, we long for our time free from sin. Let me just say that one again because that's what we need. We long for our time free from sin. That is... Jesus came. We are in him. God is indeed for us. It is a message of great hope. You know what? I'm going to read, finish reading a little bit of Romans 8 because it is so good. This wasn't the plan, but we're going to do it. And I want you to see why we long for our time free from sin because how good the picture is. How much the promises are strong in what God has done for us. I'll also whet your appetite for a few weeks' time when we look at it in more depth. Verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and he's also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can choose to be short-sighted in sin or we can be heaven-sighted. Longing for eternity. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, by your amazing grace, today you've determined that we hear a strong word on how you want us to confront sin in our life. Whether for some of us, that is to realise that we need to turn to you for the first time. For as your people, help us deal with the sin in our life. We thank you that your anger has been turned away and placed on our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.